It is the dream band viewed from outside. It's the band you could do anything you wanted to in it. Tell him he's talking a load of shite. This is the first King Crimson where there's not at least one member in the band that actively resents my presence, which is astonishing. You could trust a horse, you could trust a dog, but you could never trust a fucking guitar player. I love you, Robert. I'm sorry I broke your heart. I'm sorry. That makes me livid. Some of us went through hell. It was you told. Oh, I can't take this. At one point, I just walked out. When I came back from making some of that music, my hair had fallen out. I can I put this? I don't have the problem. The problems lie elsewhere. The original lineup of King Crimson contained a bunch of and chief amongst those was I can't be the only sane man in this asylum. Welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was just a little snippet of the documentary in the court of the Crimson King. King Crimson at 50 and that's because I've got the director of that fine film here today, Toby Amys, to talk about his experience and thoughts on that fantastic film. So let's hear my chat with Toby. Toby. Hi. Hi. I was watching the uh, film or documentary in the past week and... Um, I did love it. And one of the reasons is it doesn't take the usual talking heads form of the music documentary, which can result in the usual cliches. But the fact that you've not followed that typical path meant that it got underneath the story of Robert and the group even more. Is that something that you felt was important when thinking about how you'd approach it? Absolutely. Yes, I think I had a brief discussion with Robert about music documentaries when he first spoke to me about it. And, you know, I suppose where I come from is that, as well as being contrarian by nature, I, you know, I worked for MTV and before then another music channel for a long time. And whilst I really enjoyed the sort of sex, drugs and rock and roll side of it, I'm not denying it, I also approached music television from the point of view of somebody who was always quite frustrated by it yeah. because I really love music. It's my it's my sort of first love. It's my main passion. And it always used to annoy me that people didn't treat it with the respect and scepticism that it deserved sometimes. So I, I come from a background of always wanting to do a bit better in that department. And I think that might have to do with the fact that I can't play a fucking note. <laughs> so I'm probably overcompensating in some areas, but I think that no one can seem to attribute the quote directly, but there's that phrase that writing about music is like dancing about architecture. Mm. And it's not quite the same if you're using film or television to describe music, because I think, I think it sort of, it can communicate some of that immediacy. But what it's taking me forever to get to say is that what matters to me is the sense that, and this is one of the things that the film's about, is that we're all part of a shared moment. And that's something I think that cinema can do very well. It's very difficult to achieve. And if you're making documentary cinema, as opposed to something that's just going to go on BBC4, then you want to make the most of that. And one of the ways that you can do that is by participating and I suppose in some instances creating or being responsible for these, these kind of moments that you record. And that to me feels like you're experiencing real life, but from somebody else's perspective. And that's what really interests me with regard to that. But there is a downside, well, there are plenty of downsides to that, but there's one particular downside to that, and that is in order to sort of get in there and and not just have people sitting on, you know, something, 
comfy chairs talking about the good old days is that sometimes it's not ideal filming wise you know those circumstances so there are times with the film where and i've seen people complaining about it online you know that it is like the production values are not the production values that you would get with a six person crew that was costing 2000 pounds a day to keep on the road and that's the sacrifice that I'm willing to make because I also don't think that you get those kind of results if you've got a six-person crew. What you end up filming is drama, effectively, because everyone's got to agree what happens. And my style of filming means that you it's hell for the editors, but you sort of create this aggregate. You know, I like to talk, I like to think of, of my films in terms of that sort of that they're, they're carved from real life. So if you if you enter those situations and for the people that you're interviewing them, if it feels exactly the same as the last time they did an interview about discipline or whatever, then I think you lose that immediacy. So that's that's kind of where that comes from. But Robert was very funny about that at the beginning of the process as well. He sort of said that, you know, when you see all of these crusty old men bitching about the past, he referred to it as like the was it the dead have been brought forth, but they remain unburied, I think was his phrase. And I think, you know, the other thing that's really great about King Crimson is that whilst, you know, as Adrian Ballou points out in the film, that there's not there's not been a tremendous amount of new material and that the current band, when they were on the road, was sort of playing things from the entire catalogue, the lineup of the band was very, very different, particularly with the three drummers. Yeah. And as a consequence... They sound very different, and they're not just out there bashing out the hits. Because, I mean, even if they were just bashing out the hits, the hits are really hard to play. So so there's something there's something different to them, I think. that They feel like even though there's not been the new material that people maybe want or expect, that they are still taking creative risks, I think, when they go out on stage. And that there's an immediacy associated with that that I think is is both worthy of respect, admiration, and from my point of view, investigation, because most people at their age just want a quiet life. And so I've, I think, you know, fair play to them, and I and I applaud them, all of them, you know, for still taking those risks when there are easier versions of the path available. Yeah, you've got a really interesting mix of the latter-day band with Jacko up front, but you, you do have a fair chunk of the former members, mm. some of them who sadly are now no longer with us. Yeah, I noticed you you interviewed Gordon Haskell. Yeah. And I didn't get around to interviewing Gordon Haskell, which is a regret of mine. Although I did get the impression that he wasn't going to be very... No, he was, was very dismissive of King Crimson. And mm. yeah, it was a real clash of styles and music ultimately, I think, for him. Yeah. Taken far too soon. But you do have Ian McDonald. Yes. I think that like there are other people like... You know, David Cross is not in the film and, and Keith Tippett is not in the film. Peter Giles is not in the film. And that's a regret of mine in many ways, or those are regrets of mine. But um, I did make a decision fairly early on in the process of making the film, or I came to a realisation, if you like, that I wasn't going to be able to tell everybody's story. No. And also, you know, there's been very little input from anybody, from the manager, David Singleton, or from Robert, with regard to what I should be putting in the film anyway. But I guess I was interested in how similar and also how different the experience of singing in King Crimson in 1969 was to singing in King Crimson in 2017. And some of those experiences are repeated. And and one of my maxims as a filmmaker is that, and this is not prog, is that no one's walked out of a cinema saying that film was too short. Mm. So I, I always wanted to keep this film short. And insofar as it is an infomercial for King Crimson, the idea for me is that, I mean, I want the audience to come out. I want the audience to come out of this film talking about it. And, and I don't want, I'm not trying to lead anybody to, to a particular conclusion. I'm not, you know, as far as I'm concerned, this is a 
it's an improvisational collaboration between me and the audience. You know, as as Trey Gunn says in the film, that Robert walks in the room. You walk in the room, and Robert's playing something on the guitar, and he says, "I'm playing this now. What are you going to do?" That the film gives, hopefully, gives the audience an opportunity to think about some of the the dilemmas that people experience in the King Crimson, you know, creator space, and that dilemma principally is like, is it worth going through this? torment this acute suffering in order to create this music and have this impact on an audience and you know as a practicing artist and occasionally i have worked as a musician you know i think that's really interesting because i'm not sure it is always worth the sacrifice you know with regard to my own experience making this film i would say it's just about worth making the sacrifice for. oh it's definitely worth it thank you there's so many memorable, moving moments and funny moments. Mm. But I just wanted to highlight that part of the film where you've got Ian McDonald talking about that split or that moment that him and Michael left the band. And you've also got Robert reflecting on that and very difficult. Yes, because I used to work in television, which is a medium which is sort of notable for its almost total lack of any kind of ethical practice. The ethics of filmmaking, documentary filmmaking, are, are very important to me. And my first film details my relationships with a relationship with a, a vulnerable person, and it actively investigates the ethics of doing so. And so, when I interviewed Ian, he was not he was not in a particularly good place. And obviously, you know, this this sensation is more acute now that he's no longer with us. But I did did have concerns about using some of that footage because he was in a place of such turmoil. But simultaneously, I was really struck with his his acute honesty. Yeah. And I felt that whilst you do have to be very careful about exploiting people or exploiting people's circumstances and experiences, I think with Ian, it was just so telling that he he felt that way and i thought it was very important to have that conversation although it's not direct between him and robert in the film because it you know if you're looking for a rosebud moment or something i think that the point at which ian and michael walked away from the band was crucial to to what the band became yeah and it sort of it demonstrates that that king crimson is an idea that can survive the departure of people who participated in it. And at the same time, it, it gave a demonstration, albeit one that was you know, quite far in the past, of, of how difficult it was for, for everybody involved and, and painful. So, yeah, so I still, you, you've just, you've got to try and strike, strike the right balance when, when you have these moments. And I, and I hope it doesn't come across as exploitative because I thought it was, um, you know, it's, it was very powerful to see somebody affected so much by something that happened over 50 years ago. Absolutely. And the term that comes up, or certainly the theme comes up, is you mentioned it already, is discipline mm. and Robert's cold shower. Yeah, a studiousness in terms of practicing and routine uh well certainly i think it's like you know i like i said i i am no stranger to sex drugs and rock and roll although as a 55 nearly 56 year old man i you know it's something that like i'm not actively participating in um i also you know for a long time i lived in brighton and i've seen so many brilliant bands just fall apart due to a lack of kind of what you i think reasonably can refer to as discipline I think there's something very interesting about like the, this notion that discipline is somehow an order, you know, turning up on time and so on is antithetical to the essence of rock and roll. But simultaneously, if you want to stay in the game, you've, you've got to exercise some kind of discipline. So it's one of these these nice kinds of kind of yin and yang balances in the film is that you have the you know to some what you might refer to as the chaos of the sort of improvisation. Yeah. Um, that's that's an inherent part of of the King Crimson practice. Simultaneously, in order for that to exist, I think there has to be discipline. To say nothing of the fact that the discipline that operates gets people to the level of playing where where these these enormous risks are sort of more possible in a way. But um, 
I think it's very interesting in the film where, where Tony Levin talks about the notion of discipline being, from an American perspective, you know, being seen as punishment. <laughs> and I think that that's sort of, it's funny, that idea, and, and the sort of cut to Robert that follows after that is, I, you know, it's one of my favourite moments in the film. But at the same time, I think that just that little sequence demonstrates the importance of discipline, but also the fact that King Crimson is not, it's not quite an autocracy. You know, there is, there's conversations that go back and yeah. forth and it's sort of, so, you know, the name of the band was changed back to King Crimson from discipline. I think it's also, I always like to point out as well that like that discipline period band for me, is like, they're one of the great unsung post-punk bands of all time and you know i noticed again you had well, you had andy gill from game of yes. uh, from gang of four on the you know and and i and you never hear king crimson mentioned with 20 screws 23 skidoo and gang of four or you know but i think it's sort of they fit quite comfortably in there in a way
it's interesting um the span of the group and I, I think robert refers to this as well that last decade in the group seemed to be the first time that robert seemed to have some sort of contentness you've also got bill bruford talking about the period before well you've got a certain amount of change as well yeah i've said plenty of times before but i'm happy to reiterate it that i decided fairly early on in the process of making the film that if i tried to work out what was going on in robert fripp's head i would drive myself crazy so i leave that job up to members of the audience to see the film i'm just very wary of speaking for robert but in terms of the scripture is that he was conceiving of a version of King Crimson without him, and there was some kind of vision or revelation with regard to the notion of the three drummers. And when those sort of two ideas, those notions conspired to make Robert think, oh, I would like to be in this band. But again, I'm Sid Smith is the person for, for King Crimson lore and chapter and verse. You know, I've, I was very fortunate in making this film that there's already, well, there's Elephant Talk, there's all the Facebook groups, there's Sid's book, there's the, you know, Wikipedia page and so on. And I was like, there's that, you know, to refer to back to your earlier question, I was like, there's no point in me making a Wikipedia article with pictures that everybody's already seen as well. It's That's one of the reasons why I was sort of, edged the film into being to feeling as contemporary or 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 now as possible was because you know the past of king crimson has been so literally picked over but i think by you know and this is the one of the the sort of engines of, of the documentary is that by experiencing what it's like in king crimson now you have some understanding of what it must have been like to experience King Crimson back then. But obviously, as the film documents, there are differences between those two things. And um, Mel Collins is a particularly good, you know, he straddles those two worlds so we can travel to through time with him. How would you go about weaving King Crimson material into the film? I think you use Moonchild. Uh, yeah, well, the moon, the Moonchild is, I mean, there's it's, it's funny that like, some people have complained that there's not enough music in it, but in a way, like with the exceptions of the bits of actual silence, and they're meant to be actually, you know, those are those are decisions, they're not gaps. The whole film is full of music. But the idea, you know, also to go back to what we were talking earlier, is that the idea is not to use a film to make you feel like what it's like at a live at a King Crimson gig, partly because oh, I'm not allowed to film with them. And partly because I'd much rather the film send people to listen to King Crimson on record or bootlegs or authorized ones, obviously, or best of all, if they ever play live again, you know, it's like, they're not really my cup of tea musically. If I'm honest, there are bits of it, I think are brilliant. And there are bits that I really admire. But they're a fascinating band to listen to, and particularly live. They're just incredible. You know, it's sort of, I've seen hundreds, if not thousands of bands, you know, probably hundreds at this point, play live. And I, I've never seen anybody like King Crimson. The closest I can come to would be like seeing Swans at their peak. But um, so, yeah, so if there are things that, that leave an audience going, that was, there wasn't enough of that, then that's partly due to my desire to want them to feel that way because the first rule of show business is always leaves them wanting more. And it's that incredible moment in the film where you let the camera hang on Robert crying. Mm. You're not afraid to just let things sit there to emphasise a particular... I, I'm afraid of everything. I was afraid. I was afraid that, like... I'd really upset him or, you know, I was a little afraid that maybe there was some kind of medical thing happening or whatever. But I often describe my experience of that moment as like having, you know, when you see in a cartoon, there's an angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other. And the angel was saying, you ought to express this is a concerning situation and you need to demonstrate empathy at, at worst and maybe, you know, active care. 
if DB and the devil in me was just saying, this is going to be an extraordinary moment of cinema, keep rolling and don't say anything. So I haven't got rid of my televisual skills entirely. There still remains that yeah, desire to make my work at considerable cost to others if need be. Call her moon child Dancing in the shallows of a river Lonely moon child Dreaming in the shadows of a willow Talking to the trees of the cobweb strange Sleeping on the steps of a fountain Waving silver wands to the night bird song Waiting for the sun on the mountain She's a moon child Gathering the flowers in a garden Lovely moon child Drifting in the echoes of the hours Sailing on the wind in a milk-white gown Dropping circle stones on a sundial Playing hide-and-seek with the ghosts of dawn Waiting for a smile from a sun child There's also footage at the Albert Hall with uh, Jacko Jack check there and I think this was around the song Peace as well and you've got that bit where Jacko talks about playing at the Albert Hall compared to playing for Robert. Yeah. You asked a question which was about Jacko. Was it following in the footsteps of others and then Robert interjects? Yes, very kindly. Says very, very sweetly suggests that maybe I want to consider a different line of questioning. Well, I think that... Uh... I don't know if this is the case for all bands, but I think any sort of any grouping of people that come together sort of independently to a greater or lesser extent is always going to have a family dynamic. Again, we don't make a big meal out of it, but personally, I've always thought it was significant that two members of King Crimson were adopted. I also, as someone who's getting on myself as well, I'm not sure I completely hold with the notion that everything that happens to us in our childhood incontrovertibly affects how we are in adulthood. So I'm not always looking, mm. you know, to sort of peel people in the films back like an onion in order to come up with some kind of psychological rosebud moment that happened. But famously, bands never work particularly well as democracies. They work even worse as anarchist collectives, which is my preferred form of government. They generally end up being quite hierarchical in nature. I think one of the things that is unusual but also very effective about King Crimson is that when you look to the top of the pyramid, the top of the pyramid is saying, look to yourself. And I believe Robert in the past said that he doesn't get on with musicians very well. He's got daddy issues. But I think also... Jacko's experience demonstrates that the experience for a lot of people in that King Crimson creative space, and to some extent mine too, which is like Robert is held in such high regard, deservedly so, in terms of you know what he's achieved with his music and his his approach to the creative process. That when you get into that space and he's just going, you've got the job, just get on with it. That in a way, the thing that um, is potentially simultaneously most damaging and most liberating about that is that you're the person putting yourself under pressure. It's not It's not Robert directly. Whether he bears any responsibility for that after doing seeing what that does to people for 50 years, is that's, again, something I want the audience to decide. But it's um, sometimes it's very hard to look at yourself in the mirror in the way that you would look at other people from you know from a critical perspective so 
But I think, you know, both with the, the moment where Robert's talking about Bennett and also, you know, the, the Robert has a go at me, tells me I'm talking a load of shite when I'm talking about Jacko standing on the shoulders of giants and so on. But actually, I think he shows a tremendous amount of compassion and a certain protectiveness towards Jacko that I think is very revealing. And most people, certainly I would imagine most people in your audience would know something of of Robert's reputation. And Bill Bruford famously described him as a cross between Mahatma Gandhi, Joseph Stalin, and the Marquis de Sade, that with that reputation, it would be very easy to draw a sort of two-dimensional, even one-dimensional portrait of Robert as this sort of tyrannical martinet mystic. But I just wanted, again, I want the audience to come out with a conversation. I think this is what makes a good film, is when you've got these dynamics that it's it's not binary, it's neither this thing or the other. It's like it's two or several things working sometimes together and working in opposition to each other. So with Robert, there is this like these tremendous demands he puts on himself and by implication on other people. And at the same time, he's capable of showing real compassion to people. It's humour as well, though. Some people will think, oh, the film about King Crimson, it's all kind of intellectual and poor-faced or whatever, but that's not the case at all. No, I'm, you know, I spend most of my day looking at Bart jokes on Instagram that have been imported from TikTok, because if I go on TikTok, I know I'll just be lost there for hours, looking at more efficient, algorithmically directed versions of fart jokes. The humour is essential, and they're a very funny band. And I was so happy, actually, that I don't want to give to you know, make a spoiler, but when people come to see the film in the cinemas, which is opening nationally in early April, carrying on into um, May. Is that just UK? Uh, UK and Ireland, and then we've got some screenings dotted around the rest of the world, but right. there's a big chunk of them coming up in the UK, and, and hopefully we should have you know, new ways of being able to see the film very soon. We're very keen for people to see it. But yes, when people come into the cinema, there is this danger of seeing Robert in this particular way, but there's one particular sequence uh, which demonstrates that there is a very wry sense of humour in operation there throughout it. And it also is a nice counterplay to the occasionally hostile relationship between director and subject. Peace is the love of a foe as a friend. Peace is the love you bring to a child searching for me you look everywhere except beside you searching for you everywhere but not inside you peace is a stream from the heart of a man peace is a man whose breath is the dawn peace is the dawn of a day without end Peace is the end Like death of the war And at the start we were talking about the different shades of this film and you've also got Bill Rieflin who had cancer and who later passed away incredibly moving to see him there but determined and in top form playing with the group uh yes bill reeflin was the only member of king crimson i'd seen perform before i saw king crimson play because i saw him 
play with the magnificent revolting Cox at the London Astoria in like 1989 or 90 or something like that. Yeah. Amazing gig. Not many songs, but amazing gig. But he and I were roughly the same age. He's a little bit older than me, but also we both have a fondness and understanding for, for both the music and some of the principles of punk rock. So we sort of got on for that reason. He's also got a very, very English sense of humor. So I warmed to Bill immediately. And he also, he understood what was happening. He understood his relationship with the camera and the camera's relationship with the band, I think, extremely well. So so it was a sort of like a dance with him in a way. And it was very much a dance that he was leading. But I was very happy to follow because, you know, he not only provided, graciously provided a very informed perspective on King Crimson that perhaps wasn't available through Robert in quite the same accessible way, but because Bill had done them. Um, I can't remember if it was Guitar Craft or Guitar Circle, but he, you know, he'd been part of Robert's right. secondary guitar practice, so he had a good understanding of of lots of the principles involved, and perhaps could sort of help the audience understand some of those principles in a way that wasn't quite dry as they might have been if they were coming from the source, so to speak. And then, because my one of my alternative titles for the film was Time Lords. And also, like there is a there's a version of the film in my mind that is just the camera going round and round and round all of these corridors, this sort of Hello Cleveland corridors backstage. And after every thirty seconds or something, it would just come round onto the band again, having yet another fucking argument about like a minute difference in in timing, and then just carrying on again because a lot of the time that's what it felt like. But the fact that one of them was experiencing an acute version of mortality and and you know the clock is was ticking very loudly for bill that gave it's fucked up to talk about your dead friend in these kind of narrative terms but i i did recognize that there was an opportunity with bill to speak to the wider themes that underpin why king crimson matters and what they do matters and that is, they're all getting on, as we all are. We all live in the shadow of mortality. We all think we're going to live forever. But somebody who is facing that dilemma straight on just brought everything into a much sharper focus, as he says, you know, that being confronted with the end of your life creates a sense of urgency, and urgency is one of the characteristics of King Crimson music. Simultaneously, Bill is not the only one, but I think he speaks about it most eloquently who understands the importance of being present in the moment. And if you're truly present in the present moment, then the past and the future can't effectively cease to exist. So put it this way, with his circumstances being what they were, and they were, as he puts it, horrible, awful, he was very well qualified to talk about one of the principal themes of the film, and that is to do with how time is defined by mortality and what relationship music has to those two things. I don't know what time is. And I don't really know what music is, to be honest, although that's one of the other things that the film seeks to sort of at least have a conversation about. Because you've also got Robert covering that he doesn't have a fear of death and you move on to the next room. And yes, he also touches upon that theme as well, as well as obviously being present. Yeah, I don't have a theme of death, a fear of death, although I've got a terrible fear of dying. So, yeah, and also we, you know, we have somebody who is connected to the highest authority uh, in the mix as well, who who also can speak with great learning and understanding about um, existential concerns. That's the nun, obviously. It feels now because of the band or the live band ceasing. It almost feels like an elegy or a one view or one summation of King Crimson. So the timing of the film feels by act in a way. Yes, no one who knows me well would say that that, that I'm famous for my good timing because I'm normally late. I do think that one of the reasons that Robert picked me is that he just saw like this is a rolling ball of chaos, 
and let's see what it happen, happens if it interacts with the well-oiled machinery of King Crimson. It's the end of one thing and it's the beginning of another. You know, you look at it that way, there will be other iterations of the film that come out as well, I imagine. And certainly, I'm right in thinking that there's precedent for King Crimson being over forever and then it not being over forever, right? Mm. So, so who knows? But yeah, I mean, it's sort of, it's many things, the film, but it's like, it's not, it's not meant to be the definitive statement. It's meant to be a, a subjective take, as Sid Smith put it to me, the experience of King Crimson more than it is anything to do necessarily with the history of King Crimson, because as far as I'm concerned, A, that's already been really well covered and B, the last thing I want to do is is ask somebody to spend an hour and a half, you know, watching people bitch about what happened in 19, you know, whether whose version of what happened in 1969 was the right one or whatever. It's like, maybe it's my closing thought. It's a film that you don't have to be into King Crimson or something seen as progressive music. You don't have to be into music documentary. There's a fundamental human quality to the film that should resonate with whatever you're wanting to get from the film thank you jason yeah no that was like i mean robert wanted me to make a film about what king crimson is he's got on record saying that it doesn't do that but i think that if he knows what king crimson is it would be a lot simpler if he just said what it was but also i think that king crimson is not just what robert thinks it is one of the interesting things about the band is the degree to which it is an extension of him and the degree to which it isn't and very early on michael giles says it's his baby but he needs lots of midwives (laughs) and those midwives bring things to it that are not necessarily directly to do with robert fripp so there's this this very interesting sort of dialogue there and and this I wouldn't say necessarily it's a power struggle, but I think you might refer to it as a power dialectic with regard to how that operates. So that's what he wanted. Personally, I think the answer to that question is that King Crimson is something to live for. But also with regard to what I wanted to do with the film is that, you know, and they and they wanted the film made because they wanted to introduce King Crimson to people who don't know them. And so from my point of view, I was like, and that's just what I do as an artist and filmmaker, is that I'm interested in the human condition. And so I wanted to make a film about the human condition using King Crimson as the medium. I mean, that's it's pretentious to say, but that's what I set out to do, and I think that's what I've done. It's also a love letter to music for me and that's why you've got all that fucking shit that happens backstage and it's grimy and it looks like hell a lot of the time and you see how boring it is because that's that's what musicians have to go for so it's a film go through rather it's a film for musicians as well if i've thought of the target audience for this film it's for people who are engaged in the creative process and they're like most of them a lot of us, I can speak for myself, I can't speak for everybody, but I think a lot of people initially get attracted by the notion of being an artist or a musician or whatever because it looks easier. It looks like you can get away with all kinds of shit, you know, because you can play the guitar or, you know, because you've got a nice voice or whatever. And then once you actually get into the nitty gritty of show business, the people who last are the people who work hard and get up early and don't get pissed up if they're having to play a live gig. Those are the people who survive. It's not necessarily the people with the talent. That's not to say that people in King Crimson don't have talent, but they all, mm. you know, they're all in the game for a reason. And that's because they're professionals at what they do. So I think there's a lot to learn for both musicians and artists with regard to looking at how seriously they take what they do. And then also, you know, I've had people say, oh, it's just a, about a group of old white men and so on. And I'm like, well, as I like to think of them, humans Mm. and so i think we go into the cinema to see other human beings no matter their age their color their race their gender you know whatever the sexuality you go in there to see somebody that you recognize as a human being struggling with adversity and ideally overcoming it in a way that you can then use in your own life and so that that's what the film is for about for me and it's sort of it really, really matters to me that King Crimson fans like it. Yeah. 
And there are going to be some who are really annoyed that I didn't show archives that everyone else has seen a hundred thousand times. And there are going to be some who are really annoyed that I didn't get into some kind of ecclesiastical war between whose version of history is, is the right one and so on. But I did want to get as close to as, as I possibly can to what it felt like to be in that space, if not in that band. Interestingly, lots of women have told me that they like the film, which is also something that I, I very much wanted to sort of take it out of that like exclusively male environment. To conclude, I can't recommend it highly enough. In the Court of the Crimson King, King Crimson at 50 is showing us a range of UK cinemas from April. And I think there's a few director QAs as well. Yeah, for people who are glutton for punishment, if they sat through this, you know, me groaning on at you, Jason. No. And the screenings can be discovered at um, www.itcotck.com forward slash screenings. But if you just, you know, yeah. search ITCOC, I'm sure it'll turn up. Well, that's fantastic, Toby. Thank you very much for your time. It's been great. It's an absolute pleasure, Jason. Thank you. Lovely questions. Lovely. Thanks for having me. Take care. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew Podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.